All right. <clears throat> Woo. Isn't it funny how when a baby crying is so cute when it's not your baby? All right. If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Joshua. It's in the Old Testament. Um, start at the front of the Bible and just start going right. You're going to go through several books and you'll hit Joshua. And we're in chapter 6. We've been studying this for the last month or so and talking about uh, the marks of leadership. Joshua was a leader and how God not only prepared him, but put things in Joshua that equipped him so that he could lead. And now we've been talking about the, uh, the journey of a leader as we begin to lead as leaders, whether you're leading uh, in a business or whether you're leading in your career or you're leading your academic career or whether you're just leading as a father or a mother, or leading your own moral life, your own struggles, your own uh, soul care for who you are. We all need elements of leadership that we can bring into our lives. So we've been talking about that, and Joshua has led the Israelites across the Jordan River after 40 years of being out in the desert. They left Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, they crossed the Jordan River, now they're in the Promised Land, and we finally have come to the moment in the book of Joshua where it's all about to happen. They are about to go to war. They're about to conquer the promised land. And Joshua had a wedge uh, strategy for taking the promised land. They were going to come and bust right through the middle of the country and divide it and then attack south and conquer the south and then move north and conquer the north. But what stood in their way to come right through and create this wedge was a fortified fortress called Jericho. It was a military city that had walls that had been built all around it just for this purpose to prevent an invading army from coming in and taking over the whole land. So standing between them and conquest of the promised land was the walled city of Jericho. And um, everybody has a Bible but me. Hang on. All right. Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. Maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, Listen to it with new ears. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. So they had locked the city down. They knew that the Israelites were coming. They were already in Gilgal, and now they knew that there would only a matter of time before they would march on Jericho. So they had locked it down, and no one went out, and no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, And if you remember last week, we talked about how this Lord was Jesus himself that met Joshua on the road. Listen to what he says. He says, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And when the priests blow, and when the, with the priests blowing the trumpets... And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. Jump over to verse 20. So they did that, and this is what happened. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted, and, all, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. So let's just think about this for a second, because you got to admit, 
this is that kind of story that you only like read in the Bible, right? Like Jonah and the whale, you know, and other stories like that. That here was the actual strategy. There's the walled city. Now, I want you for six days, take all your people, your arms. You want, you want to have your priests around the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to be carrying these ram's horns, and they're going to march around the city once, go back to your camp, have dinner, relax, come back the next day, march around the city once, go back, do that for six days, and on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And all the while, he's saying, I want everybody to be quiet. It's complete silence. So you know what's happening, you know, by the sixth day, you know there's people on that wall. You know there's some Jerichoans that are just fed up with this and are throwing stuff and saying stuff, our team's number one, that kind of stuff, you know. And on the seventh time around, that's when the priests blow the trumpet, everybody breaks their silence at that moment and shouts, and the walls come tumbling down. Isn't that like a kid song? Mitch, is it? Okay. I don't know it. You know, uh, a couple things here. The Lord is clearly saying, the battle's mine. I'm going to do it. You can write that down, scribble it in your margin. If you don't have a Bible that you can write in, take ours, write in them. Remember, the Lord is saying, the battle is mine. So what is there to learn here? The battle's the Lord's. Let's close in prayer. God, you are the one to be praised. Now we know how to gain victory in our life. I mean, think about just this just for a second, like, don't we want victory? I mean, we all want to have a victorious life. Wouldn't you like at the end of your days for somebody saying and said, that person led a victorious life? Wouldn't you like to have victorious relationships in your life? I mean, I don't know what that means, but doesn't that sound good? Victorious relationships. So here's what I'd like for you to do. The next time you get in an argument with that significant other, if you have a significant other in your life right now, uh, do this. If you don't have a significant other in your life, then just write this down and prepare yourself for it. So the next time you get in an argument, this is what I want you to do. I want you to march around them seven times, then take a horn and blow it right in the air and shout, Wah! and watch them crumble. Victory! You'd be amazed at how much that will unite you together as a couple. So wouldn't that be crazy if that actually worked? Like if somebody, if we had a video testimony next week of saying, yeah, you know, we were really working through our budget and we realized that we had different priorities of how we wanted to spend our money. And he went out and bought a motorcycle when I was saving for us to have children, you know, and then I just marched around him seven times and screamed and blew a trumpet. And next thing I know, he'd sold the motorcycle and he serves me all the time. <laughs> like we could sell like uh, the walls of Jericho relationship kit, couldn't we? Like, we could put shoes in there, like marching shoes and a trumpet, you know, and like lessons on shouting. That would be like, anyway. But seriously, think about, what does that mean? Your marriage is victorious. <laughs> really? Or have you ever described yourself, you know, how are you doing this week? I just want you to know that, let me tell you how I'm doing this week. I am triumphant. I, man, I am so victorious. I am, I have victory over sin. I have victory over discouragement and boredom. I have victory over fear. I have victory over career or finding a job, but you don't have a job yet. I know, but I have victory. So if the battle is the Lord's, let me ask a simple question. Where is he? 
And I'm talking about your life right now. If the battle is the Lord's, if he's the one that causes the walls to fall down, where is he? Because in reality, it seems like I do all the work. Do you ever feel that way? Like, you know, that the Lord says, hey, the battle is mine. Well, that's great, but I seem to be doing all the work to try to gain any kind of victory in any of these areas of my life. Relationships, they're hard work. You know, victory over sin, it seems like that's all me, baby. How about victory over discouragement or, you know, boredom? Again, that seems like all me. And you know what's crazy is that when I live in that paradigm where I'm, I'm saying, okay, the Lord is the one that tears down the walls, but it seems like it's all me, then I'm really in a lot of trouble because if I'm the X factor in this equation, then I'm not so sure that I, how does someone who's not victorious bring victory into a situation? A couple of weeks ago, we were at uh, the Young Life Banquet and uh, with our friends, the Rogers, and uh, you know, for the last month or so, I've decided I'm going to start eating better and I'm going to maybe lose some weight. You know how we all kind of go through that, you know, that vain thought that if I just lost three pounds, somehow the world would turn on its axis and it all worked for me. And, uh, but that's true for me, may not for you. But, and so I go and I sit down at the banquet and if you've ever been at these banquets, what they do is they bring out the food after everybody's seated and they've started the banquet. But there's food that they've already brought out and put on the table before you even sit down. You know what it is? Dessert. And so I sit down and there's a chocolate ganache piece of cake right in front of me and I sit down and I swear to you, it began to talk to me. Randy, come on in and have a seat. I've been waiting for you. And you start hearing music in the background. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Shut up. I'm not looking at you. And they bring the chicken. It was great. And the rice and all that stuff. But the whole time that cake is just looking at me saying, oh, yeah. I'm really what you want. And the truth is, that's really what I wanted. I ate it. And you know what I'm talking to myself? I'm not going to feel bad about this. I'm going to enjoy this. What kind of prison am I in that I would feel guilty about eating a piece of cake? Who cares how much I weigh? That doesn't really matter. How fat was Moses? Nobody knows. (laughs) Nobody cares, right? I mean, seriously, was Jesus overweight or was he perfectly fit? Who knows? And he changed the world. I'm eating the cake. It's true, isn't it? Then you go home and you're like, you know, and then sanity starts to set back in. Like, you know, you want to be in shape and you're like, why did I eat that cake? And it's true though, you know, but when it comes to Christian living, if I'm the X factor in it, then listen to what happens. Because do you ever feel like that you just don't get church? I mean, seriously, sitting here right now, I've been in a room this size. There are people in here going, I don't get this. I don't want to be here. Getting here this morning was the biggest hassle you could possibly imagine. And you know what's funny about Sunday morning? Sunday morning, getting going, Sunday morning sometimes the hardest morning in the week. I can get to my office by 7 in the morning, but getting here by 10.30 seems like I've got to change the world to do it. And then I come in, and then I'll leave, eh, I don't get it. Where's victory in that? Or are you belong to a small group? And do you ever have this thought go through your mind the night of your small group? I'm not sure I want to go. Do you ever struggle going to your small group? Do you ever fall asleep in prayer? 
Do you ever find reading the Bible boring? Victory! I feel I can't do it. And I come sometimes to church hoping that church does it for me. And I'll tell you this, that when we come to church with that mentality that I'm hoping that church is going to pull out some magic trick or the songs are going to be in such an order this week that it's going to be like heaven itself opened up or Randy's going to say something that's going to work its way around my cynicism and get me right where I live. Guess what? We're expecting too much from church. And that's why a lot of people dance from church to church. I mean, I could list you 10 great churches within just two miles of here, and all the pastors are friends of mine. And I know what it's like. Midtown doesn't work. Let's go to St. B's. St. B's doesn't work. Let's go back to Midtown. You know, let's go to, uh, you know, Axis Church. Let's go to uh, City Church. Let's go to Village Chapel. These are all great places. And how easy it is for us to come into church and say it doesn't work anymore, and we bounce around. Where can I go where it may work? Okay. Walls of Jericho. Let me say this. We get it backwards. Christian, we get it backwards. Because we believe that victory is fought and we try to live our lives to have victory. And when we try to live our lives to have victory, we see God as our coach. And what does coach do? Coach calls and plays. And so when coach calls in a play, I try to run the play. Go to church. Okay, I go to church. Did we score? You know? No, no, no. Now go to small group. You know? I got small group. First down. You know? And when we get tackled behind the line or we fumble the ball, what do we feel? We, we, look, we don't want to look over the sidelines because we've let the coach down. Because I'm trying, God, to get victory. I know you're calling in the plays. And I know maybe I'm struggling here and I could do better. I know I could do better. I know, I know. And we live with this perpetual vague sense of shame and guilt that I just can't do what God wants me to do. But if I could do it, then I would score and then we would be victorious and God would applaud and say, I'm so proud of you. Because Jesus put you on the field, but you scored with the team. Wrong. Let me take you to a new way. We've got to flip it around. Because we don't spend our lives trying to get victory Rather, we spend our lives living in victory. Let me say that again. As Christians, we don't spend our lives trying to get victory. Wrong. We spend our lives living in the victory that is already ours. Let me try to explain. A number of years ago, uh, there was... uh, uh, Here it is. Uh, a number of years ago, there was uh, a group of boys that were brought to Nashville from Africa. Maybe you heard about them, the Lost Boys of Sudan. And this was, they were brought from Sudan because uh, there was a civil war that had broken out, a civil war in that country. And, uh, and there were a lot of people that were killed, and they were, uh, these boys were orphaned. Let me read you a little bit about these boys. Most of the boys were orphaned or separated from their families when government troops systematically attacked villages in southern Sudan, killing many of the inhabitants, most of whom were civilians. The young boys survived in large numbers because they were uh, away tending herds or were able to escape into the nearby jungle. Orphaned and with no support, they would make epic journeys lasting years across the border to international relief camps in Ethiopia and Kenya, evading thirst, starvation, wild animals, insects, disease, and one of the most bloody wars in the 20th century. 
Experts say they are the most badly war-traumatized children ever examined. So a group of them came to Nashville. Maybe some of you were a part of greeting them. And uh, the first thing they did was they found them a place to live and they put them into an apartment. And some friends of mine who were a part of that told me this story that after a week, uh, the boys were miserable. They were absolutely miserable. And they were trying to explore why they were miserable because they were, now they were out of the war. They were in a safe place. They were in the best place they'd ever lived in their lives. They had their own apartment you know, with air conditioning. I mean, this is crazy. You're not in the jungle anymore. And here's what the boys said. We have no place to cook our food. Where do you build a fire in this apartment? They said, we have no lamps to light the rooms. Where do you keep your lamps around here? And finally, they said, we have tried and we've tried, but we cannot find a well anywhere near our apartment where we can get water. They lived without fire, they lived without light, and they lived without water. They had all those things, but, see, when we brought them from Africa and living on their own in the jungle into Nashville, you want to talk about a paradigm shift, a kingdom shift? They were no longer being hunted. Now they lived in Brentwood, okay? So a little different from the jungles of southern Sudan. Would we all agree? Radical change in their thinking. It's no different when we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. we got to realize that the way we thought about life, ourselves, and the world, and the kingdom of darkness does not compute in the kingdom of light. There is a new understanding. So let's talk about what this new understanding talks about. In Joshua chapter 6, and I think it's verse 2, let me read for you what Jesus said to Joshua. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Do you find that unusual? The angel of the Lord has got his arm around Joshua, and he's saying, hey, man, you see the city of Jericho? He's like, yeah, I see it. He said, do you see that I've delivered it into your hands? Uh, no. The walls are still standing. All the enemies are on the walls. I, what's up? Uh, can't you see it? Can you see it? Uh, no. But that's the kind of stuff that God does all throughout the scriptures. When he came to Gideon, remember when he was hiding in the wine press and he was thrashing wheat, hiding from the enemy because he was a coward and didn't want to face the enemy, and the angel of the Lord kind of came down and propped himself against the wall, and he goes, Hail Gideon, mighty warrior. Strange? Or how about Paul? Here's what's crazy. is Paul or Saul who persecuted the church, was changed to Paul. And Paul was Paul before he understood what it meant to be Paul. He was being called Paul before he understood the power of what it meant to be Paul the apostle. God saw something. God did something. God was accomplishing something long before Gideon, Paul, or even Joshua or us are aware of what's taking place. Okay. Let's see this. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we get the victory? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we get it? He gives it to us. It even says in Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. 
So what does that mean if the Bible is declaring that we are already victorious if we are in Christ? What is it saying? If we already are more than conquerors, regardless of your circumstances. Well, I'm going to go to a bunch of verses here. We're going to skip through them. So if you have a pen, write these down. You can go back and look at them another time. Because in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 6, John makes a claim here. He said, whoever claims to live in him, meaning Jesus, if we claim to live in Jesus, he says, we must walk as Jesus did. So if we're going to be in victory, we must walk as Jesus walked. Well, okay, and and in the meantime, why don't you jump over the Grand Canyon? I mean, because Jesus was who? He was Jesus, you know? Well, let's look at how Jesus walked. Maybe we got a shot at this thing. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says this, I am the son of God, nobody can mess with me, and I will win every time I play a game. Now, it doesn't say that. I'm kidding, all right? For those, those of you snoozing in the back, I thought this was your formula for winning Monopoly. No. Chapter 5, verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. This is Jesus, the Messiah. He's saying, by myself, I can do nothing. He is declaring something here of his dependency upon someone other than himself. Well, who did he depend on? Chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 16. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus is saying not even his teaching came from himself. That he was not only dependent on another, but that one he was dependent on was the Father. And even what he learned, or what he was teaching, he learned directly from the Father. How about chapter 8, John chapter 8? When you've lifted me up, this is verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. I can do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So Jesus is saying he's dependent upon the Father. Everything he teaches is from the Father. Everything he does is from the Father, that the Father never leaves him alone, and his whole life is surrounded about finding out what the Father is pleased by and then doing it. How about chapter 12, verse 49 and 50? For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. And how to say it. I love that. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So Jesus is stating it again. I'm not only dependent upon the Father, I was sent by the Father, and everything I do comes from the Father, and everything I do or the way I even say it is in accord with the Father. Jesus was dependent upon the Father. That's how he walked. That's how he lived. But he was Jesus, right? How can we do that? You know, uh, one of our, if you want to be a backup singer in our band, you have to be pregnant. We've determined that. All our ladies are pregnant that are in the band. And Margie is pregnant. And uh, when do you do, Margie? 12, 12. That is beautiful. Wow, just a few short months of Christmas baby. You'll learn later why that's not always good. 
all right? We have a Christmas baby. He always feels cheated. You know, birthday, Christmas, we combine them together, you know? But she has a baby inside of her. And you know what's remarkable about this little girl that's inside of her is that this little girl inside of her gets her life from Margie. And what's crazy is that everything that Margie eats, this baby shares. Everywhere that Margie goes, this baby goes. Every time she sleeps, well, okay, the baby doesn't sleep, right? But you see that they're connected, that the baby is in her, and in essence, Margie is in the child. Why is that so significant? Because listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 20. We've already heard how Jesus walks. This radical connection with Father, which would be outrageously cool, wouldn't it? He's our power source, you know, everything we do, we do because he leads us to do it. Chapter 14, verse 20. On that day, you will realize, and he's talking about his resurrection. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, which we just talked about, and you are in me. And I am in you. Margie. We're being brought into the equation. We are in Christ in the same way that Christ is in the Father. And see, here's the crazy thing. Christ is victorious. And if Christ is, in, if Christ is victorious and I'm in Christ, what does that make me? I am victorious. That's why it says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory in him. We're already victorious. See, Jesus brought down the walls of Jericho, and he brought down the walls of us. He brought down the walls of our sin, our imprisonment, our nakedness, our hunger. That's why Galatians 2.20 is so powerful when Paul said, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So something has died and something has been brought to life and this new life that's now living in me to where I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. That is my new way of living. And in this new way of living, it says, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does that look like? Well, it looks just like the walls of Jericho. Because why were the Israelites marching around the city? Why were they blowing the trumpets? Why were they shouting? It was a march of victory because God said, I've already given the city into your hands. It's a shout of victory. Even before they saw the victory in reality, they were victorious. And in the same way, Christ is calling us now to put our faith in Christ in me, the hope of glory. For example, when we call ourselves, if you're a Christian, you're familiar with the term that we're sons and daughters of the king. And isn't that such a pleasant thing to think about? that we're sons and daughters. Just think about that for a minute. Are you pleasant? But here's what's crazy, is I want you to think about it a little differently this morning. Because I'm not just a son of the Father. I mean, that's beautiful in every context of it. I have been brought into Jesus' sonship of the Father. I'm gonna explain. Our Father we have no problem realizing that our father is crazy about Jesus. He loves him. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have no problem understanding that when Jesus wanted something, he got it. That the Lord, the Father, worked in and through Jesus. That he was well pleased. That's the sonship that I'm brought into. I'm brought into the position of Christ. I'm brought into his place to where now I am not just 
Jesus isn't just an heir to the kingdom of heaven. We are co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. That's we've been brought into the privilege, the honor, the prestige, and the power of the son position of Jesus. Really? The Israelites, when they lived out that victory that was already theirs, although they didn't even see it, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, 11, I think it's verse 30, that it says, by faith the walls of Jericho came down. They were marching in faith. They were looking for a hope that they had not yet seen. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And why were they doing that? Because God had promised. And why do we do that? We live out of the victory that is already ours. Let's go back to the Sudan boys. So my friends, when they went back and found out that they were miserable, guess what they had to teach them how to do? Okay, put your your thumb underneath this and push it up. Lights. Yes, that's a light switch. That's your lamp. Now come over here. This is the stove. And they had to teach them how to turn the stove on and how to work the stove. Then they came over and showed them this marvelous invention called faucets to where water's right there in your own kitchen and bathroom. And guess what happened when they taught them these things? They used them. Did y'all hear that in the back? They used them because the truth of what these things were set them free to now live. It rescued them from their misery. Well, what did they have before they came over and taught them? They had all that stuff, right? The night before, they still had lights in the ceilings and the switches still worked. They had ignorance about the light. And when I don't know that I have something, it's the same thing as not having something. But when I know that the victory is mine, now I get to live in the victory and my life becomes a march. And I get to share in the victory of Christ. Last night, did any of y'all see Missouri beat Oklahoma? Football fans? Well, it was so funny because the crowd, you know, stormed the uh, field. Did you see that? Thousands of people coming down on the field. And the football players are trying to go through. And so they're interviewing the coach, the winning coach of Missouri and the uh, quarterback. And as the lady is sitting there interviewing them, this guy who I don't, did anybody see this? Stuck his head in, you know, like right there in front of the camera. And here's the quarterback, and his head was right here. And he's like, just all goofy, like, hey, you know? And he's, what is he saying? He's saying, we won. Y'all didn't win. He won. The quarterback won. You were in the stands drinking too much. All right, now get out of the picture. But see what we get to do when it comes to Jesus? We get to poke our head in the screen. And Jesus was victorious. And we go, hey, Jesus is number one. We won. (laughs) Jesus said, the works I do are my father's works. He said, the words I speak are my father's words. He says, the life I live because of the father. And then he says, you live because of me. As the father has sent me, I send you for me to live as Christ. And here's radical. We cannot live the Christian life. It is impossible. That's why if we're the X factor, we will always fail and feel like we're living in defeat. We can't live the Christian life, but Christ did live the Christian life. He does live the Christian life, and he can live the Christian life in you and me as believers. Christ in us, the hope of glory.
Doesn't that sound great? Yay! But the goofy guy on the TV screen didn't get invited to the locker room, did he? So let's talk about something down to earth. How do we get victory over sin? Or better yet, how does Jesus get victory over sin? In Romans 6, it says, uh, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Really? Is that true? We died to sin? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For real? What he's saying is we and ourselves cannot gain victory over sin. But Christ did that, and he's saying it's finished. That he already gained victory over sin. In our flesh, we can't gain that victory, but he did gain that victory for us. See, let's, let's think just for a minute, the ramifications of that. What is sin trying to do? Because Scripture is clear that if, if I've been forgiven, then I'm forgiven for my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins. That sin can't separate me from the love of God, right? Right? It can't take away the victory. It can't take away the victory that is mine in Jesus Christ. That God is no longer far away or close depending on something that I do or don't do. Everything about my life is now Christ in me, the hope of glory. God is near. He will not leave me. He will not forsake me. So what does sin do? Sin deceives me into thinking that that's not true. That the promises are not for me. That I live in this vague sense that when I sin, I'm really running away from God. And when I don't sin, then I'm running to God. And depending where I am on that scale is how I feel about myself and my relationship with God. In reality, there's no sin that can remove me from the presence of the Lord. I'm forgiven. Christ has already gained the victory. Sin has no more charge on me. And we've said this before. It's kind of like when the credit card company calls you and you have $10,000 of debt on your credit card and you have no money. And you call and they go, yeah, hello, this is the credit card company. And your heart jumps up in your throat because you know I am indebted to these guys. They are going to hang me up. They've got power in my life. They can shut me down. They can come and take my car. They can come and put a lien against my house. They can even, if I don't pay, man, maybe they'll even bring charges against me. And so we get all nervous and we're freaking out. And we're like, okay, okay, let's come up with a plan. How are we going to do this? How am I going to make a payment? What can I do to where you guys will back off a little bit? I'll be good, I promise. But if I owe nothing on my credit card, not a zip, not a, not a penny, then when that credit card company calls and says, hey, we got a problem, <laughs> you're right, you got a problem because I ain't got no problem. You got no power in my life. You got no charge against me. There's no accusation that you can bring against me that's going to stick because I owe you absolutely nothing. And that's what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is he canceled the debt. They have no power now to make a claim on me meaning that no sin can separate me from the presence of God or communion with God, but sin can deceive me into thinking that it can do that. And when it deceives me that I've been separated by God because of my sin, what do I do? My victory now is how do I get back over there? My victory is how do I get back into the right place with God? 
I'm back in the place where, God, can you at least throw me a play to where I can make an in run and I'll get to you somehow. And we spend all our energy trying to accomplish something that's already been accomplished. And this is what sin loves to do. It loves to take your focus off of the fact that you are victorious and put your focus on the walls of Jericho. And so we spend all our time saying, man, I wish I had victory over that sin. And all you're doing is thinking about that sin. All you're doing is concentrate on how do I overcome, you know, lust? How do I overcome greed? How do I overcome coveting, you know? How do I overcome how angry I am against that other person and what they did? And we're focusing so much on sin and how do we get victory over it that we stop marching around the city and marching and living and shouting and blowing the horn of our own victory. Hey, let me read for you out of Steve McVeigh's book, Grace Walk. A guaranteed way to be defeated by the flesh is to focus on the sins that we want to avoid. That's like going on a diet and then reading the menu at Pizza Hut every day just so we'll know the foods we want to avoid. We don't exercise our victory over the flesh by being preoccupied with it. We are to be obsessed with Jesus, not sin. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We're not trying to get victory. We are victorious. We're living in that victory. Well, that looks like a lot of crazy stuff. You know, we could talk all day about, you know, what, is, what does victory look like in loving each other? What does victory look like in loving ourselves? What does victory look like? But let me close with this. What does victory look like if we come to church marching in victory? What does that look like? What does that smell like, taste like? Soda. You know, it doesn't smell, taste, or feel like great. We're going to church. Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, and we've got fish you know, FM on the radio the whole way to church. You know, sorry, if we're waiting for our emotions to catch up with the reality of what's true about us, that may not happen anytime soon. And a lot of us tend to think if I feel it, then it's true. If I don't feel it, it can't be true. Guess what? As they were walking around the walls of Jericho, do you think that there was anybody in that group that said, I don't feel like marching today? You think there was anybody that would walk by and say, I just don't see how this is going to work. How is this possible going to work? This is ridiculous. We're marching. We should be sharpening our swords. We should have a plan. That Joshua, he never has a plan. Can't believe that guy. Gosh. You know what it looks like is faith. And what does faith look like? It means showing up and being present in the promises of God. Faith is extending my hand, fully accepting what God is about to throw my way and expecting that God's the great giver. This is Marva Dawn. She wrote a book called, uh, actually, A Royal Waste of Time, uh, talking about worship. And listen to what she said. Worship, wor, wor, that kind of stuck. Worship. Worship is a royal waste of time. But indeed, it is royal. For it immerses us in the regal splendor of the king of the cosmos. 
The church's, the church's worship provides opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence in corporate ways that takes us out of time and into the eternal purposes of God's kingdom. As a result, we shall be changed, but not because of anything we do. God on whom we are centered and to whom we submit will transform us by his revelation of himself. By his revelation of himself. We come together on Sundays to say, Lord, revive us. Restore us. Let us see the walls of Jericho come down. Let us step into the victory that I don't feel, and I may not be seeing evidence of that in my life. But instead of me leaving here saying, I think I can do it, let me leave here saying, I know you have done it. And where you lead me, you're leading me in victorious march. That my life would be trumpet shouts of what Christ has attained for me on the cross and through the power of his resurrection. He has gained us the victory. That's why we are more than conquerors. So, are you in Christ this morning? Because if you're not in Christ this morning, I can't say that everything I said for you this morning is true. Maybe you're in a journey place to where you're trying to figure out what this all means and we welcome you here. Man, we love having you here. And that may be the first step step that you need to take in your own life. But if you're in Christ this morning, do you understand that you're victorious? Is that a reality that you're willing to let your heart and your mind step into? Will you open your eyes and let the Lord show you what a light switch is? What a stove is? What a water faucet is? You know, it's him that said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Do you see why that's true now? Because if all this is mine, and yet I don't know that I have any of it, I will live as if I have none of it. But if I know all that is mine, then the Lord says, now you can live in it. So what do I take into my relationships? I take victory, meaning I take the presence of the Lord. What do I take in my struggle with sin? I take victory because I know it has no call or charge on me. What do I take into my discouragement, maybe my depression? I take victory knowing that Lord is working all things together for the good. What do I take into my fear? Victory. What do I take in my jobs, my career, and my family? I take victory. Right? Mm, let's pray. Lord, we just have to admit that so many of us have been lied to. We've been told on TV and even by churches, Lord, that to live the victorious life, we've got to get better. And it's so easy to live with a vague sense of guilt that we're just never going to get there that other people are serious or mature or good Christians, but we'll just never get there. I thank you, Father, this morning that we see that we share in the sonship of Jesus Christ, that we share in your victories, Lord, that you said that we are more than conquerors because we know this morning nothing can separate us from the love of God. I pray, Father, that you'd let us this day march Let us blow the trumpet of our worship and let us shout in victory.
and see the walls come down. Thank you, Father. I pray, Lord, that just during this time of reflection, this time where we just stop and ponder, uh, are we living in the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, that you'd speak to us, take all that's been shared, Lord, and make that personal and press into our hearts. In Christ's name.